0: Good morning, we'll be in Luke 17 this morning, Luke chapter 17, and although we have hit December 1st, I'm going to drag us back a couple of days to Thanksgiving and speak on that this morning, I guess you could entitle the message, The Grateful Ten Percent. And if you're looking at the subtitles in your Bible, you'll probably know we're going to read about the ten lepers this morning. But first, hey, Luke. There we go. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I wonder if you remember what year was the uh, first Thanksgiving took place. 1621, the Plymouth colonists and the Wampanoag Indians shared an autumn harvest feast in acknowledgement, uh, it's acknowledged as one of the first Thanksgiving celebrations in the colonies. Contrary to what you might think, they didn't do it every year after, after that. The uh, the Wampanoag Indians, too, if you've studied your history and remember it, um, helped the uh, the, uh, the colonists make it through that first winter and survive, and they had, a, they had a great feast. Those Indians, their descendants, actually still exist today. So for more than two centuries after that, um, days of thanksgiving were celebrated in America for various things, but n- not like we know it today. It wasn't until 1863 where that uh, tradition really started, with uh, Abraham Lincoln proclaiming it a national holiday, <clears throat> but uh, I was uh, trying to think about what, what, what do I remember about the first Thanksgiving because holidays tend to lose their meaning as time goes by. Did you know only half of the Mayflower's uh, passengers survived to the first Thanksgiving? They lost half their people. The uh, first Thanksgiving lasted three days. They had three days of uh, remembrance of what had happened and thanksgiving for uh, God's goodness to them. There's uh, really no records of of what they ate in the beginning, although it is known that uh, Governor Bradford sent four men out to uh, hunt birds. There may have been turkeys in there, there may have not. Nobody knows for sure. And because the uh, Pilgrims had no oven and the Mayflower sugar supply had dwindled, uh, the uh, meal did not have uh, pies and cakes and other desserts which uh, we've become so familiar with. <clears throat> and the, many of the dishes were prepared probably using the traditional Native American spices and cooking methods because that's probably mostly what they had. The second actual Thanksgiving took place in 1623 to... Marked the end of a long drought that had threatened the year's harvest. So uh, Governor Bradford then, you might remember Godmer, Governor Bradford from your early days of uh, history. He called for a, a day of fasting. Or, or I'm sorry, not yeah, not fasting. That would be the wrong thing, huh? No, he called for a, a religious feast um, and Thanksgiving. And uh, it, this kind of thing kind of became common practice here and there in the, in the early days of our country. Um, During the American Revolution, the Continental Congress designated one more days of thanksgiving. Uh, George Washington issued a a proclamation uh, when uh, the the war for independence ended. And uh, so did his successors, John Adams and John Madison. You all remember that from your history, right? In 1817, New York actually became the first of several states to officially adopt uh, a regular annual Thanksgiving holiday and celebrated it, uh, although they may have done it on different days. Uh, but un- unfortunately, the South remained largely unfamiliar with this holiday. The turning point came in 1827 with a woman named Sarah Josepha Hale. She, this, check, listen to this, this is amazing what she did. She was an editor for a magazine and a very prolific writer, and for 36 years, she wrote to um, governors, senators, presidents, and other politicians trying to convince them to have a regular national day of Thanksgiving. And it wasn't until 1863 that Abraham Lincoln finally heeded that request. And uh, he uh, sent a procl- proclamation entreating all Americans to ask God to commend to his tender care all those who had become widows. Orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable Civil War strife and to heal the wounds of the nation. He scheduled Thanksgiving for the final Thursday in November, so we have to commend Sarah for her efforts, don't we? You might know Sarah from your history. She's the one who wrote, Mary had a little lamb. So it was. they began to celebrate it that... Uh, that final Thursday in November until 1939 when Franklin D. Roosevelt moved the holiday a week, a week back in an attempt to spur retail sales, or Black Friday. <laughs> <laughs> this is during the Great Depression, so he probably had more uh, motivation than, than maybe we do today. But uh, that wasn't well accepted. The, his plan became known as Franksgiving. People were not very happy about that, and so in '41 he switched it back to the final thursday in november they didn't have mashed potatoes and pumpkin pies milk corn on the cob and cranberries in that first feast probably they did at this point later on in the beginning they probably had lobster rabbit chicken venison fish eel squashes beans chestnuts hickory nuts onions sounds good huh not really what we eat today is it (laughs) the pilgrims didn't use forks either they had spoons knives and their fingers Some interesting facts about turkey that uh, you might not be aware of. The largest turkey ever raised was 86 pounds. Wow, huh? size of a large dog. Imagine how much it must have eaten. (laughs) And uh, they found out turkeys can have heart attacks. Not from overeating, though. Uh, The United States Air Force was doing some test runs and breaking the sound barrier, and nearby turkeys dropped dead with heart attacks. You will learn about that in your history books, though. <laughs> Final fact I'd like to share with you is uh, we're all very familiar with TV dinners. They're famous or infamous now, depending on your, your opinion or need. Uh started with Swanson created the first TV dinner. Apparently, one year, they had bought too many turkeys and uh, could, couldn't sell them all, and so you can freeze turkey. And so they created the first frozen dinners that way. Of course, you remember that all from your history, right? Actually, <laughs> Actually I remember uh, Rick, Rick preaching one time saying, you know, the further we get from the origination of a holiday, the more it tends to lose its meaning. And I think Thanksgiving today, we think about eating, don't we? The feast, the parade, the football, days off, and it's mostly a time of family. And it's good to get together and, and, and be with family and be thankful for family, isn't it? Um, but it's not, not originally what Thanksgiving how, how it started. And I don't, I don't think we want to lose sight of that. There is one story though, and it's the one we'll look at today, that hasn't lost its meaning, it hasn't been forgotten, and it hasn't been diluted by other activities and things. And that's the one we're going to look at today. So we'll look at uh, starting in verse 11 in chapter 17. It says... Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. This is a point in Jesus' ministry where this is his final trip to Jerusalem. This is is the time just before his last week, before he was crucified. So we're going to read about ten lepers who get healed by him. So they came pretty close to being lepers for life, didn't they? It made me think, um, you know, how many people did Jesus really heal in the three years of his ministry? These guys were probably some of the last, weren't they? Well, in John 21, it says Jesus did many things, other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is, this is my guess, my opinion, but I, I believe that in that time, Jesus' traveled around Israel, he probably healed everybody who had faith. So it's good, these, these lepers may have been last, but they didn't need to worry. The mercy of the Lord is great. Verse 12, it says, Then he entered a certain village, and there met him ten who were lepers, who stood afar off. <clears throat> we, have to, we have to pause and talk about leprosy, because it's not something common today for us. Maybe something that you're not familiar with. Um, it was the worst disease of their day. Uh, it, its physical ramifications were horrendous. Leprosy attacks the body. It leaves sores, missing fingers, toes, damaged limbs. In many cases, the initial pain of leprosy gives way to a loss of sensation. You can't feel anything, which makes it easier to hurt parts of your body. The disease can take thirty years to run its course, and in that time, limbs simply start to fall off. You know, assuredly, it's it's a horrible disease. And we have the impossible task of trying to fathom what it would be like to be in these guys' shoes because we're going to see their response and understand their response. You really have to understand their condition. So we can't go back 2,000 years very easily or just read it and try and get a, an idea. But one of the things that we can do is we do have the computer and the Internet and we can actually see pictures. So I have a few pictures of leprosy and I have to warn you ahead of time at their graphic, you might not want to look at it, you see the whiteness of the skin, couldn't feel good to have hands like that, huh, it was very disfiguring, There's actually a couple of different types of leprosy and they're not sure. This is more like Hansen's disease, something we still have today, although they can cure this today, but they couldn't do that back then. The picture of somebody's hands, you know, they're they're basically losing the use of their hands, aren't they? You would get bumps and sores and disfigurements. It was pretty miserable. There were other things about leprosy, too, that, that made it a horrible disease. There's a woman who wrote a book called Jesus, the One and Only, and she tells of an occasion, an occasion she had to be near a modern-day leper colony. Something within her, had always, she'd always wanted to minister to lepers. And, and so this chance when she was here, this was an opportunity possibly to do that. She walked by the entrance to the colony three times. It was gated off. She, she did, you couldn't just walk in so easily, and people didn't leave so easily. And when she looked through the gate, she saw people in there suffering. And she begged herself a chance to go inside and, and to be a witness to them. But she couldn't bring herself to do it. The reason... She said it was the smell that overwhelmed her. She could not work up the stomach to go inside the colony. It says here, she could not bear the thought of witnessing for the Lord, but at the same time becoming violently ill, ill as she faced human beings already acutely aware that they were different. So the trip passed and she did not go inside. Jesus would have gone in, wouldn't he? So we can gain an appreciation for the condition of these men, what, what they were going through. Grotesque damage to their bodies. It's really an, a, an attack on our eyesight. It's hard for us to see it. And the smell... It's, it's difficult to imagine what that would be like. We have people who get quarantined today for things, but I can't think of anything today that, that's like this. Maybe, maybe AIDS, but um, it doesn't seem to be as disfiguring as this, does it? The other thing that, that's terrible about this disease is, is the emotional pain. Because when you had leprosy, You had to be completely separated from everyone, including your family. You were removed immediately from the community. You had to go outside the city. You could no longer be inside around people. There could be no contact whatsoever. So you have leprosy. You can't even say goodbye to your family. You have to go. And you would go because you sure don't want them to get this. It was very contagious. Lepers tended to roam together looking for food and begging for assistance from a distance, learning to yell loud voices for people to stay away from them or beg for some kind of help. So to imagine these, these ten lepers in their condition, and who knows how long they had been that way, how long they had been... living with the physical and emotional pain of their disease. And so verse 13, it's, it's no surprise then that they might do this. Look at verse 13. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. I have a s- slide here of what that might have looked like. <clears throat> it's a little inaccurate because Jesus is a little close to them. They normally would have been much further away. They call him Master. The word Master here means chief commander or overseer. Same word the disciples used uh, when they were recognizing his authority versus his teaching. Uh, for instance, the passage when uh, when Jesus tells Peter to put the net down, he says, "Master, you know we've been fishing all night, but..." Because you say so, I will do it. And the other time uh, when they're out on the, on the boat going across the Sea of Galilee, and they go up to them and say, Master, we are perishing. And then he commands the wind and the sea to calm down. So look at these lepers. How did they know? How did they, why did they call him Master? You know, they're just filthy lepers. are not they disconnected from society? And what was going on? Not the case, because tremendous things were happening. Leprous they may be, but they were not rebellious or stupid. They had seen and heard enough to know that he could do something about their condition. And they ended up being healed while people in his own city who did not have faith were not. They say, have mercy on us. Mercy, a wonderful thing. They knew what to ask for, didn't they? You think, well, you know, Jesus healed a lot of people, but as a leper, you might not feel like you might be included in that group because you've been outcast from society and Jesus is healing plenty of people. They didn't take that for granted. They didn't want to take mercy for granted. They they heard that the Messiah heals all and they they had nothing to lose. So in verse 14, he says, So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. You have to ask yourself, why didn't he say, like at other times, your faith has made you well, go in peace? But he doesn't. He says, go see the priests. Well, what are the priests going to (laughs) do? Well, the local priests, if you didn't know, among other things like leading worship on the Sabbath... He was something of a health official as well. When you got leprosy, he was the one that said, you have leprosy, you're out. But if somehow you were healed from your leprosy, he was the one who could declare you clean and allow you back into the city. And that would be a great thing because then you could go see your wife or your husband again and your family and your children So as I was thinking about this, I wonder how often that happened. (laughs) I don't think it ever did until Jesus came along. The priests rarely, if at all, ever pronounced somebody clean. They spent all their time pronouncing people contagious, leprous. So uh, I think that during the three years that Jesus was doing all the healing, you know, the the priest must have been awfully busy pronouncing people clean. A new part of their job. It's a great thing though, isn't it? So he says, go show yourself to the priests so they could be declared clean and, and rightfully or legally allowed back into the city and with their families. And then it says, as they went, they were cleansed. So we're going to see that these nine, le- nine of these lepers... <clears throat> They're not like the 10th leper. But they do have some faith because they do what Jesus says. You have to imagine what actually happened. They, They stand there far off and say, Lord, have mercy on us. And he says, go, show yourself to the priest. So they begin walking. Now, just a minute ago, they were fully leprous. As they began to walk, they were still leprous. And I don't know how long it took, it doesn't say, but at some point... Things changed. Can you imagine this? Okay. So they're headed off in search of the priests, and on their way, they're healed. On their way, a hand comes back and tingles with life. A crutch tripped on a filthy rag as it fell to the ground, and a leg was back, healthy, whole, complete. Skin cleared up. Hair that was once all completely white now turns brown. And can you imagine these nine guys, 10 guys walking together and these things began to happen to them because they they trusted the Lord. They believed that he could do it. And they showed it by doing what he said even though nothing had happened. You can't imagine their response, the excitement amongst them. Wow, look at this is great. Praise the Lord, huh? They were excited. And they probably started running at that point to go see the priest. You know, we get to go back to normal life. Isn't this great? It would be surreal, if you ask me. It would be very surreal, it would be very strange. But in order for that to happen, the men had to start walking to see these things happen. I think there's an additional lesson we have to see here in in this passage. You know, we're going to talk about Thanksgiving, but... but, uh, This is faith in action. It's just like Abraham. The Lord said, Pack up your stuff, Abraham, and go to a land I will show you. He didn't tell him where in the beginning. He just said, Go. And Abraham packed and went. He didn't know where he was going. But he trusted the Lord. Something we want to remember too in this Thanksgiving week and even for the rest of the year. We don't want to put conditions on God, do we? You know, He says, Love me despite the disease that you have. He says, "Obey me, despite what you may feel your lack and talent or resources or whatever." He's fo- he says, "Follow me, despite whatever oppositions or problems you may have in your life." Say no to temptation while it's still difficult. Praise me in the darkest of nights and in the worst of circumstances. But that's how God is, isn't He? He expects us to trust Him, and rightly so, and we should. We should have faith in him. Because if you praise God only in the good times, only when things are right, that's not really faith, is it? You're not showing it. We, we, we fail to remember at times when we're going through hard things. It's, it's the time to show God that we do really trust him. And this life is the only time we're going to be able to do that. Once we're in heaven, there's no, no more need for faith. Okay, so verse 15, this is, where the, this is where we begin to see the difference between, between the guys. Verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice and glorified God. He turned around from the nine and went the other way with a loud voice. Why was his voice so loud? Well, you know, he's been used to talking loud, isn't he? Stay away from me. Send me help. You know, he's been used to speaking loud. But wouldn't you be that way too? Wouldn't you be that excited? Wouldn't you yell in a loud voice if something like that happened to you? I know I would. This, this, This one man, this Samaritan, goes back to give humble thanks to the one who's changed everything for him. The others... Now that they, they've got what, <clears throat> what they so earnestly wanted, you know, they're, they're going to get to the priest and procure those uh, certificates of health, you know, and get back to the, the everyday life they used to have, go back to their, their businesses, their families, their pleasures and the like. How come the nine didn't act like the one? Why didn't they turn around and do the same thing? I've had an observation that there are two, two especially difficult times in life. One of those times is when things are going really well, and the other times is when things are not going so well at all. When things are not going so well, we can tend to make one bad decision after another, can't we? And make things worse. The funny thing is, is that you would think when things are going really well for us that we would be at the height of our best character. But we don't tend to do that. We tend to, to, to get into our selfish interests. We tend to go after the things that we want. We tend to think more of ourselves as a result as well. There seems to be some pride as well. And sadly enough, when things are going well, and you've seen this in history over and over again, sometimes it even leads to complacency. You would think, wow, things are going well. Don't you want to keep it? Don't you want to appreciate it? That's not what we do. We see that principle in Scripture, um, and it's especially uh, significant in spiritual life. I don't know if you've seen this or experienced this before. A lot of you have. You know what I'm talking about is that when you see something really great happen spiritually, it's one of the greatest times of temptation, and you have to be careful. You have to be on your guard. The most significant story that I can think of in the Old Testament about that is David. You know, In the the beginning of his reign, he's doing really well. He's conquering all all the other countries. He's bringing peace to the land. He's in charge. He's it. He's the biggest guy. And then he stays home from battle one time, and he rests on his laurels. And then he sins with Bathsheba. So we look at these nine. They're fallen to that, haven't they? They're they're so caught up in being better and being able to do what they want to do now that they race off into life to go do all all that they had been missing. But the one doesn't. He turns around and he goes. And look in verse 16 what he does. It says, and he fell down at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. I like to show a picture of that because you don't see this much in our culture, in our world today, do you? Somebody down at the feet of another person. This man has a different reaction than the others. And we want to, we want to focus in on that. But you have to imagine that the other, the other nine are running the other way. You wonder if they thought about their friend. Hey, hey where did uh, Joe go? You know? What happened to him? Well, they're off pursuing their things. You know, it's easily easy to rationalize. Ah, it's okay. You know, he'll catch up. It's easy to rationalize things when you're uh, running after something you really want. So you have nine Jews, and at the end of this uh, verse, it says, and "It says, and he was a Samaritan." The scripture points that out clearly. He was a Samaritan. So you have nine Jews and one Samaritan. It's interesting. Normally, the, new, the Jews and the Samaritans don't hang out together. But this miserable disease with which they were all afflicted drew, drew them together. You know, it's still drew, true today. There, is, um, there are leper houses in Jerusalem today called abodes of the unfortunate, where there's actually Jews and Muslims together in the same place. Under any other circumstance, these people would not be together at all. But now things look like things have changed. For these nine Jews and this Samaritan, I like the uh, the New International Version translation of this verse. You know what it says? Maybe you have the NIV, and my reading of the New King James is a little different. It says he threw himself down, threw himself down. He just down in front of the Lord, so grateful to be healed. It's hard, to, it's hard to imagine this, but I, I thought of, the you know, there are times when people are on an airplane and things don't go well. They have all kinds of problems in the air, turbulence, and they think they're going to die, and the plane actually lands on the ground. People get out of that plane and they just get their faces on the ground. They kiss the ground. They are so thankful to be alive. I have a, a short clip of something like this.
1: Whoops. Passengers who spent more than a week on that cruise ship are grateful to be back on solid ground.
2: Some bent down and kissed the earth after stepping off of that boat in Mobile, Alabama. ABC's Marcy, Marcy Gonzalez was watching the drama unfold. Good evening. The ship pulled into the dock here about four hours ago, and still passengers are disembarking, cheering that their nightmare on board is finally over. The last miles were the longest as passengers on the Carnival Triumph sweated out their final minutes aboard the luxury liner that became a squalid prison ship. I'm not angry, I'm just <laughs> so happy to be home, really. The Triumph left port eight days ago with more than 4,000 people aboard, but an engine room fire Sunday left the mammoth vessel a helpless giant, marooned in the Gulf of Mexico with no power, sewage seeping down walls, and scarce rations. For passengers, it was a nightmare. Sewer kept backing up, and there would be six inches of it all over the ship in the dining area where we had to eat. Carpeting in the hallways, soaked in urine, the heat and stench forced passengers topside, where they put up a kind of shantytown, living in the open and sleeping on deck. One sick passenger was medevaced to safety. Uh, a few little medical emergencies and uh, I, I hope and pray that they're, they're okay. Once at port, the passengers' ordeal still isn't over. Buses carried weary travelers on the next leg of their long trip home. Passengers will be reimbursed, offered a free cruise and $500.
1: I know it was very difficult
0: and I want to apologize again for subjecting our guests to that.
2: And those not taking the buses provided by Carnival are finding their own way home, saying they are too desperate for hot food and a hot shower to wait. We're live in Mobile, Alabama. Marcy Gonzalez, ABC News. Now back to you.
1: All right. Thanks a lot, Marcy, for that report. Appreciate that. Unbelievable. You can imagine that will probably be the greatest shower and greatest hot uh, meal they've had in their in <laughs> entire life. Oh, yeah, for sure. That one woman who was medevaced, in fact, she had suffered a stroke. I we're waiting on a word about her condition, too, but obviously a serious condition there, so they're, we we're happy to hear they got her uh, off the ship. But you can imagine some folks are like, huh, I don't want to be on your bus. I'm whatever way I can get out of here and get close, you know, get to a friend's house closest to Mobile or a family member or whatever. And not only that, yeah. but
2: I don't want your $500, I don't want your free cruise, <laughs> I, give me my money back and let me walk away. The president and CEO of Carnival Cruise Lines, uh, Jerry Cahill, did come out and say he was going to get on the ship to personally apologize to the people that were on there. As soon as the ship docked, he said he was going to get on there and apologize. One thing, though, social media has blown up about uh-huh. how it was a terrible experience, but they were appreciative of the crew members who really did at least try to make it somewhat a decent experience.
1: Let's be real. The crew was suffering, too. They were as through the same awful else. condition. And the, uh, also, also the bad part, imagine all those days waiting to get to l- back to land. Only one functioning elevator <sighs> on that ship. So 4,000 people trying to get off one ship with one elevator to get back to ground. So you, it took them hours to it, disembark. They're still doing it. Oh it's going to take them five hours. Unbelievable. Estimation. Those folks all deserve. They're <laughs> so lucky to be home. <laughs> they are. We are happy for them. To hell and back. All right. Passengers who
0: That situation sure made the uh, commentators uh, <laughs> emotional, didn't it? You imagine, think of the two girls who been down and kissed the ground. How grateful they were to to be off that ship. You know, that's. When was the last time you felt that grateful about something? Now, I was thinking about this. You know, gratefulness is an incredible feeling. It's an incredible experience. When you really feel grateful about something, there are a few things that compare with that I don't know if you can remember in your past hopefully you've had some situations where the gratefulness just went tugged from the bottom of your heart and made you really appreciate whatever it is that had happened So that's the uh, that's the feeling of this man, this one Samaritan, That's how grateful he is. He is so grateful. He's down on his face before the Lord, and he is he is so glad to be healed. You know, he he put his family on hold, he put the priest on hold, he put the cause for celebration on hold, and he went back to the one who made a difference, who made it all possible for him. The others they didn't do that. He went back. He wanted to go back to his cause for celebration. We have cause for celebration, don't we? Every Sunday morning when we come here and remember the Lord. That's a cause for celebration. It's good. It's good the Lord called that. It's good for us to remember what it is we've been saved from. So that he comes back and is down before the Lord and so grateful he's thanking him. And, and Jesus says, you're welcome. Oh, that's not what Scripture says, is it? Look at verse 17. Look at the Lord's response says, Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? So he, he told them to go show themselves to the priest. He didn't, he didn't say come back and thank God. But this verse tells us that's what he expected. He expected this to happen. I try to imagine sometimes when you're reading the scripture, especially the Gospels, what the tone of the voice of the Lord is. When he said this, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? You think he was angry? We've been angry in situations like that, haven't we? How can you be so ungrateful? I don't imagine the Lord spoke in that tone of voice. I think it was a tone of voice that had grief in it, you know. Being hurt. Being hurt. You know, didn't I heal ten? Where's the other nine? Have you ever done that before? You receive some kind of blessing, you're so excited about it, and the personal benefits from it that you forget to thank God. We have thanksgiving once a year, but our thankfulness really should last a lot longer than that, shouldn't it? There was a sister teaching Sunday school one time, a group of children, and she read the story to them. And then she says to them, you know, what, what do you think about this story? And one little girl, she says, Jesus must have been so happy that somebody thanked him. But that's not what we read in the scripture here, is it? You don't, you don't see his happiness, you know. She's got a great, you know, glass half full reading of the text, doesn't she? And she sees that's the way it should be, huh? Somebody should do something for somebody. They, the, the recipient gets whatever it is they want, and then they thank the one who's the giver. That's how it should be. But Jesus, in this text, he, he doesn't concentrate on the grateful person. He concentrates on the ungrateful 90%. He doesn't even address this man directly when he comes up and he's thanking him. He talks over him and the disciples and maybe other people around. He says, hey, were there not nine more who were cleansed? Where are they? I think sometimes we look at gratefulness and we don't give it the level of importance that we should. In this text, Jesus makes it very clear that it's very important. It's serious. He really did expect those guys to return. It'd be great if the story was said something different, you know, that Jesus was glad one guy came back and, he's, you know, this is great. You know, um, it's good of you to come back and, and give thanks to God for everything you have. You know, keep up this habit in life. It's a good thing. And it, and it would be, wouldn't it? But he doesn't. In verse 18, he asks a third question. Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? It matters to him. I'll never forget when I was a young believer, one of the things that Tom Peaslin uh, was showing me, and I can't remember the scripture exactly that we covered, but I remember the, <laughs> I remember the application And the application is this. We forget that we are created in the image of God. We are created with mind, emotions, and will. We have emotions, and so does God. He has feelings, and when we're not thankful, it matters to Him. It bothers Him, and it should, and we should remember that. So finally in verse 19 he says to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Now this is an interesting statement, I don't know if you caught this, but this man has already been healed. And yet Jesus says to him something different, Your faith has made you well. This is one of the neat things about studying the scripture and getting into depth, in depth a little bit and maybe seeing some of the meanings of the words. But there are three words that are used in this passage that all seem similar, but they're actually different. Let me point them out to you. In verse 15, it says, one of them, when he saw he was healed, the Greek word there is a medical term, and it means to mend or repair. It's like a broken bone finally mending, you know, the guy's all patched up, all right? Following that? Then in verse 17, Jesus says, we're not all ten cleansed. So you got to heal and you got cleansed, okay? This is a different word. This is, root word for this is, uh, is uh, our word, catheter. It's a medical term, too, and it means remove the impurities. Like when a doctor inserts a heart cath, angioplasty might remove a blockage from an artery, and it will cause healing. So naturally, the Jewish connotations of this word are important. To be cleansed was exactly what the priests would be looking for and would declare. Okay? But now in verse 19, Jesus says, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. So you got to heal, cleansed, and well. This word is a different word than the other two words. It's not a medical word necessarily, although it was used to describe the safe delivery of a baby. Uh, This word means saved. It's the Greek word used to uh, describe people who escape dangerous situations. Sailor's surviving a storm at a sea would say they had been, the, the Greek word is sozo, or saved. It's the same word that uh, Matthew used in his gospel when he talked about Jesus would come and save his people from their sins. So do you realize what's happening here with this one Samaritan leper? He not only got cleansed from his leprosy, he, he showed saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And most commentators say, this, this, this guy got an additional blessing, the greatest blessing it's kind of the opposite of the story of the, of the four guys who bring their paralytic friend to Jesus, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and then he talks with the, the Pharisees about it, and then he says, rise, get up and, and walk. So the guy comes in and is saved from the sins, and then he gets healed. It's the reverse here. This guy comes in and gets healed, and then he gets saved. So now, do you think that just like the other nine who've run off back into life, that now he's been healed, he's been saved, that he's going to get up and walk off and do the same thing? He's going to go back to life now, run back to his his wife maybe, run back to business and the pleasures of life? Doesn't seem likely, does it? This guy seems different than the others, doesn't he? What is it that's different about him? His gratefulness really pays off here. Because gratitude is not just a matter of being polite, is it? It's just not remembering once in a while to stop and be appreciative of something. I think when I, when I studied this passage, what I really came away with is that gratefulness really needs to be a way of life. We often talk about Christians, the hallmark of the Christians is love. And it is, and it should be. And I think uh, uh, with that comes humility. But gratefulness ought to be there as well. Why? Why? because we have been given the absolutely biggest possible gift you could possibly get in the universe. And if there's not gratefulness exuding from us, something's wrong. One person wrote it, they said, I believe that gratefulness is not a characteristic. You're not a grateful person unless you practice gratitude. And that means reflecting on what you have sometimes and that means recognizing at the time when somebody does something for you especially the lord that you respond living with an attitude of gratitude a phrase made by the famous zig Ziglar. and you know something there is it's like i say there's nobody who can have this attitude better than those who know the lord we have everything in him we If he didn't give us any more than salvation, that would have been enough. But he's given us so much more. There's so much reason to be living a grateful life and for it to be a hallmark in my life. living If you think about it, living a life of gratefulness is really a different kind of life, isn't it? If you really are appreciative of what you have it's going to make a huge difference here and then as a result a huge difference of what comes out here and what you do here. <clears throat> gratefulness can, can really affect a life in a big way. There is a story of a, of a, a woman who showed gratefulness to God despite her circumstances uh, which were affecting her for the rest of her life. There was a guy named Jack... Uh, from North Carolina, who was on a short term mission back in 1996. He was on a leper colony on the island of Tobago near Trinidad in the Caribbean. Heard this story? Yeah, it's an incredible story. It's very moving. It's short, but moving. Just goes to show you that not all the islands in the Caribbean are, are resorts, huh? He was at a leper colony there, and there was time for one more song, so he asked if anybody had a request. And a woman who had been facing away from him turns around, and Jack says, she had the most hideous face I've ever seen, worse maybe than the face we saw on the slides here. The woman's nose and ears were entirely gone. The disease had destroyed her lips as well, and she lifted up a fingerless hand in the air and said, can we sing, Count Your Many Blessings? Jack was overcome with emotion. He had to leave. And one of his team members followed him and said, Jack, I guess you'll never be able to sing that song again, huh? And Jack said, oh, yes, I will. But I'll never be able to sing it the same way. This woman, who's so grateful to God for what he had done for her, was grateful and rejoicing despite her condition. Jack ran into her and now he was never going to be the same again either. Do you see that? Gratefulness makes such a big difference. And the song is true too. The children sing the song and I think it's a terrible thing that that we relegate it to just the kids. Count your many blessings. You do that sometime. You're having a bad day, sit down with a piece of paper and a pencil and start writing down the things you have. And I'll tell you what, by the time you're done doing that, your attitude will be changed it will be changed. It's a good thing to do. You know, if if our sinful condition causes us sometimes to not remember to be grateful, well, then what we've got to do is to practice to overcome that like we do any other sin in our life and become different, to be different. Okay, so why be thankful? In this passage, it's because he expects it. And we can stop the sermon right there. That's all you need to know, because he expects it. Second reason, he deserves it, doesn't he? We can stop the sermon right there, too. That's all you need to say. Jesus deserves our gratefulness, doesn't he? Well, the Lord invented gratefulness. He must have. And it's good for us to do. He deserves it but it's so good for us too, don't you see? It's so good for us. It, gratefulness lived out is a powerful life. You know, I thought of this morning as I was thinking about this, is I thought, you know, everybody from this church lives pretty far apart. We're not all close together, and we're not, not well known by the people who live in the city. But what if We all did live in the same city here, and we all went to this church, and we knew a lot of people in town. We worked here and everything like that. Would people know us as a grateful people? Would they say, wow, those people that go to Calvary Bible Chapel, boy, they're loving people and humble. And I have never seen some people so grateful before. I wonder what it is they got that we don't got. We, we can have that effect even if we don't live in the same city, right? <laughs> Gratefulness helps us respond when we're blessed, like David. If he'd been grateful for things that were going on and kept, his, kept doing things that he was supposed to, he would not have gotten into trouble. If we keep our head on straight and when great things happen to us, the first thing we do is remember to, th- oh, thank you, Lord, and anybody else who's involved. Gratefulness helps us go through trials. When bad things happen, the world doesn't have this, only we do. I know that all things that happen to be God's using for my good. I can even be thankful than that. The world can't understand that at all. But it's a promise of God. Gratefulness, it unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what you have into enough and more. It turns denial into acceptance, chaos to order, confusion to clarity. turns a meal into a feast, house into a home, a stranger into a friend. That sounds like a glass-half-full attitude, which is a good attitude to have, don't you think? So is that it? Do we Christians just have glasses half-full? I want to tell you today that's not our case. Scripture says we have glasses where... It's been pressed down, shaken together to get as much in there as possible and it's flowing over. That's the kind of life we have. We don't have to worry about this half glass stuff. You've got to realize that. The world doesn't have that. I'd like to, uh, to close with, with two things. With gratefulness, you're going to want to remember to think outside the box. Let me just tell you a short story about that there was a father and mother of a young man killed in the military in a little church one day they came to the pastor and told him they wanted to give a monetary gift as a memory to our son who died in battle the pastor said that's a wonderful gesture on your part he asked if it was okay to tell the congregation and they said it was so the next sunday he told the congregation the gift was being given in memory of the dead son On the way home from the church, another couple was driving, one of the couples from that church was driving down the highway when the father said to his wife, Why don't we give a gift because of our son? And his wife said, But our son didn't die in any conflict. Our son is still alive. Her husband replied, That's exactly my point. That's all the more reason we ought to give in thanks to God. In the old days, in the beginning of the country, they used to declare days of thanksgiving here and there, whenever something would happen. No reason why we can't do that sometimes in our life, in our day, maybe as a church, maybe as a family. It's a good thing, I think. I'll close with this song that every time I hear it, it really lifts me up. Some of you will recognize the the words, and it's the last line that really um, really speaks really uh, puts the clencher on it. If the life we've been given is made beautiful in the living and the joy that we get brings joy to the heart of the giver, then right here, right now, this is the song I'm singing out. I want to live like there's no tomorrow. That's how a believer should be living, huh? I want to love like I'm on borrowed time because we are, aren't we? It's good to be alive. I won't take it for granted. I won't waste another second. All I want is to give you a life well-lived to say thank you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much this morning for all that you've done for us We could sit here for the rest of the day making a list of things, and we could go on, Lord, but we would get tired. Lord, if we think about all our situations, we can be grateful in them. If we only look hard enough, we might see your hand, even in the bad circumstances, and know that we can give you thanks for what you're doing. But even more importantly, Lord, someday you're coming, and we're going to be with you. And then it's all going to become clear how much more we had to be thankful for. God, help us to try to see some of those things now and not have to wait so long that it might affect our hearts and we might find ourselves more devoted to you and definitely more grateful. And that gratefulness might be a real light, a real hallmark in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.